Hello and welcome to He's Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And uh, you join us on the 6th of November, so there are fireworks going on outside. Yes, lovely um, fireworks. So if you hear the explosions and stuff, don't you worry. People are just celebrating the um, the foiling of the gunpowder plot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and today we've been watching The Garden of the Fincy Contini's. Which is a, <laughs> there you go. Yes. Which is a 1970 Italian film directed by Vittorio De Sica, who's best known for Bicycle Thieves... Umberto D, uh, Shoeshine, Miracle in Milan, which I love. A whole bunch of classic neorealist films from the immediate post-war period. Yeah, and uh, this film is 25 years after the war's finished. So this is 1970, and it's based on a novel of the same name by Giorgio Bassani from 1962. And is the novel autobiographical, do we know? Is he the, the Alberto figure? Oh, I don't know. He is from the region. He's from Bologna. Here we are. I'll just look at his Wikipedia. Bassani was born in Bologna into a prosperous Jewish family of Ferrara, which is what the film follows. Yes. So it sounds um, reasonably inspired by real life, if not directly autobiographical. Yeah. Um, he certainly knows what he's writing about, I think. Okay, so good. the film follows a group of Jews in Italy, in, in northern Italy, as I say, in this area of Ferrara, which is in Emilia-Romagna, yeah. in 1938, when the racial laws have just come in in yeah. Italy, which segregates... Uh, the Jewish population. Yes. This very well-to-do family have a bloody great big house, a walled garden, a tennis court, and they host tennis tournaments and tennis gatherings there because the other clubs have all closed down for Jews now. That's right. So basically, it's a stately home. What's extraordinary about it is that it's in the middle of the city. These racial laws mean that uh, Jews can no longer be part of the tennis club, so they invite the more prosperous people like them to play tennis in their own private tennis court inside uh, the garden. Mm. And it's not just Jews that they invite. They, they seem to have a kind of real open-door policy to people who want to come. There are non-Jews yes. there. There are socialists. Um, but, you know, the, a lot of the people there are Jews, and it's a place for them to commune and convene. There's a uh, kind of historical love story going on between a couple of the characters. Um, the girl of the mansion, Nicole, uh, has has had this ongoing friendship with Giorgio, who is the son of a nearby family. The dad of his family works for the, the party, um, and he's getting his degree, and they've been very close for a long time, but he is really in love with her. Mm. And you see in these flashbacks, which I think are wonderful, how she really kind of seems to see him as like a younger brother. Yes. You know, so there's this um, miscommunication between them that's sort of unspoken, if you like, as to how they feel about each other. Mm. There's also the the tall, dark, handsome one, Fabio Testi, uh, who is uh, non-Jewish, but he's involved in this group, and he is the kind of swarthy stranger in some respects that gets in the middle of their um, non <laughs> non love yes. sort of partnership, and a, and a triangle kind of develops. But really, I kind of found the love stuff. Um, a bit banal. What I found most interesting is the background of rising fascism to the whole thing. Well, I, I mean, I love the whole thing, and you know, I mean, when it's finished, and you know, I said, "Oh, so lovely." And you think, and you said, "Lovely," because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> of course, it is kind of the wrong word. But what I meant by that is that it's so beautiful and moving, mm. right? Uh, and 
it kind of it earns the emotion that it elicits from the viewer right so you know on the one hand it's a very simple film it's a film about you know people from the same milieu but not really so you know she is very well wealthy he is a middle-class professional yeah well-to-do but you know part of the differences between them is that you know in normal times they wouldn't even kind of think about getting together but these are extraordinary times so you know so they're both jewish they share a culture they share both you know a jewish culture yeah kind of uh, uh they are culturally assimilated but they are practitioners yeah they 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 practice their faith mm. um so so they have a lot in common yet they're also kind of you know divided by class right um but instead of these extraordinary circumstances bringing them together it brings them even further apart right and so you get this kind of honey colored view of you know this magical world that is on the verge of being extinguished by unspeakable brutality right so so there's something that is both lovely and that kind of it's almost like you've got your heart in your throat because you're just waiting for terrible things to happen right mm. and um and the film doesn't knock you over the head with them really the film is very gentle mm. in the way you know that it leads to this end which is you know it's almost like the film in a way makes you understand or a little bit at least why people did nothing so i kept saying why don't they run <laughs> right like you know oh no i totally get it i think that's the best thing about the film yeah it really strikes me it's funny because i mentioned a film recently that i'd quite like to watch um which is a 1924 uh, austrian expressionist film called the city without jews mm. um and it's a kind of satire from what i understand about a place that passes laws to expel jews and then everything kind of goes well or people are happy with it, all that kind of stuff and then it goes badly um but what really... I haven't watched that yet, but what really strikes me is the titles, right? This is the Garden of the Fifty Continues. That's a city without juice. There's this thing about space in there, and these are spaces... Cities and gardens are spaces with boundaries. Yes. And the idea of inclusion and exclusion is who's allowed and who's not is mm. kind of implicit in both of those ideas, I think. Yes. So, you know, the city expels the Jews, and this garden is a... Uh, it it's, uh, insulates... The Jews. Yeah. When you're Living. inside, when you're inside this garden, you feel insulated from, like I said, the rising fascism outside. You understand why these people don't feel the urge to leave, don't see what's going on. Mm. Let me riff on that idea because I think that's a, a brilliant point. So you know what happens in the film is not just that they show you that. So you know the garden of the Fitzcontinues is like this uh, safe space. Yeah. Um, but the thing is that it begins to be less and less safe as the city becomes more and more dangerous. And there are moments where, you know, the seeker shows you that in a way that is like, you know, almost instantly physically kind of um, uh, uh, understandable, right? So there are two scenes. The, the one scene where he's on his bike and he encounters a fascist parade coming his way, mm. right? And you instantly feel that the danger that he's in, that the city's no longer his, yeah, that, mm. you know, riding a bicycle is now a danger. The scene in the cinema, yeah, where he tells, he speaks against Hitler on the screen, and then he's told, you're lucky they don't know that you're a Jew, right? So actually, you know, 
so long as they don't know he's a Jew, he's he can move through spaces. Yeah, but as soon as yeah the knowledge is there, he can't. And then there's the other scene where you know he's passed this fascist parade. Yeah, and he takes the key to get home and you could see that he's desperate to be inside his own house. Yeah. Mm. That inside his own house, he's safe, but until the door closes, yeah, he's vulnerable to whatever. Yeah. I, the city is no longer his. It's just, it is a city without Jews, right? Mm. Like, uh, or it's a city where Jews don't have a right to be there anymore. Yeah. Even though there are Jews there. Uh, and I think the film communicates not only that, those incidents, but actually the progression of them, yeah? How, you know, you know, in the beginning, kind of they're moving through these spaces, even if it's to go to that garden, yeah? And then kind of, you know, he's expulsed from the university. He's got to use the, the Finzi Contini's library. And then, you know, he's afraid to walk down the street, yeah? Like, mm. um, it's, I think the film is, does that magnificently yeah to the point where and this is a spoiler technically but the film is 50 years old mm. um, at the end of the film the Finzi Contini's are taken to a concentration camp yes um, a number of characters have uh, died um, I, I think what, one thing that I did like about the love story um, is that it it's clearly kind of doomed you know I think you kind of feel that well maybe you don't feel it right from the start but you start to feel it but it's doomed not just because the wrong characters fall in love or, you know, the love is kind of um, uh, unrequited and that sort of thing, but it's because, like, literally they can't withstand the pressures of the fascism going on outside and characters literally die because of it and, and they're caught up in it too. Like, I know, but there's something... So, for example, I, I, I admit, like, to me there was a difference between the middle-class family and the aristocratic family, right? So the middle-class family, I mean, it sent one child up to France, right? Like, you know, there is a kind of a planning of possible escape routes, even though there's an unwillingness and an attachment and there are feelings, and yeah, you do understand why it's so difficult to leave. Mm. But, you know, with Nicole, I didn't understand that at all, you know, because, you know, on the one hand, both she and her brother only feel safe in that space. And actually, initially, that was because of their wealth, yeah? The kind of everywhere they went, people looked at them and talked about them and so on, and they felt uncomfortable, right? Mm. There's, a, again, a beautiful little scene where you, you're showing them as children and someone says you can instantly tell which are the private, yeah, which, which people pay privately, mm. yeah? And it shows them, right? So they are the object of discussion and so on. So you can understand why you know, they want to feel protected in that. But then she goes to school in Venice. She gets her degree in Venice. Mm -hmm. And she takes on as a lover, you know, a kind of a, a proletariat communist, right? Mm -hmm. So she's not afraid of life, right? So why doesn't she leave, right? Like, mm. I, I don't understand that. They're wealthy. They've got money. They see it coming, right? Like, because this is not the first year. We're not speaking now of 1939, yeah, kind of. Yeah, no, the film has moved on. Yeah, it's 42 or... I mean, I don't know well, when... Well, 43 is when... So Mussolini was deposed in 43, and then a couple of months later, in September, the Germans occupied the country, 
and released him from prison and inst- installed him as a puppet leader. Right. And that's when concentration camps were installed in Italy. Right. Okay. So when they're being taken away at the end, has to be 43 or 44, 43. something like so that. So it's five years after the film started, right, yeah. where you see all this progression of events. So, for example, I very much understood the father of the middle-class family remaining. Yeah. Mm. You know, because somebody's got to look after the house and the business and... You know, the house and the business is what's making everybody else's life abroad possible or the going abroad possible, right? Mm. So you can understand why he might end up there. You can also understand why the older Finzi Contini's, you know, Mm. might not want to go anywhere else no matter what happens, right? Mm. Um, But the girl... But the girl... Yeah. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I mean, I guess the film... It has something about the kind of... um, like the frog boiling in the pot yeah. sort of thing of it creeping up on you without you realising. But as you said, she does kind of notice it. It's funny, we were thinking, when we were watching the news just before, I was thinking about that because you were saying about this is what... Uh, so the election is... Well, the election is happening at the moment in the United States. The count is still happening in a few states. And, um, and Trump yesterday evening in America came out and spouted 15 minutes worth of just the most ridiculous lies and you and they were looking at it on the news today and you were saying I can't believe that no one is like reacting to this more more you know yes. how how normalized this has become and so on and that's kind of what was making me think like you're right like in your youth this would have been the most ridiculous scandal and just absolutely unheard of we've had this boiling pot thing going on here too to make this more normal mm. you know and i think and it kind of speaks to i think what the film shows kind of speaks to that too like i mean really what the film's the film's major strength for me is how it shows people's inertia and um not reluctance to change but but ignorance to what is even happening or refusal to see the signs so when the son goes to france with his brother to see his brother mm. and there's a character there uh, who was in a concentration camp it wasn't that cow as a socialist. Yeah, he was in Dachau, so, and he managed to escape. I mean, actually, I didn't know how realistic that was, really. I thought, is that realistic? Because the idea is he escaped by saying that he had become a Nazi. Yes. And that felt very unrealistic to me. Um, but, but I thought, well, actually, it's serving a plot function here, because it's, the whole point is the kid who's come from Italy is being confronted for the first time with someone who was actually there yes. and has seen this. So, like, it makes but- it has a function. But also, and I, I, I really don't know, yeah. but, you know, kind of let's say the Dachau uh, originated in 1936 or something. You know, there would probably be a difference between Dachau in 36 or 35 or whenever it was True. started and Dachau in 44. Yeah. So, I mean... Um, yeah. But he's still tattooed, isn't he? I mean, again, as to how much of it is a... Um, anachronism and when exactly things came in you don't know but but as for what you're being shown in the film he's tattooed on his arm and he says you know we are being treated as as objects as things to be labeled or whatever um, that as, was as, started in 1933 right. and it was initially intended to hold political prisoners so actually okay. it completely makes sense yeah. um but still the idea that he got out by claiming to be a nazi now is that's what that's what i found you know kind of um, a little difficult to swallow, but that may just be ignorance. Maybe that really did happen. The point is, I did let it go because I thought the function it was it was fulfilling in the film, which was to confront this kid 
who was isolated from what's really happening with someone who was actually there was a useful function. Yes. Well, actually, the thing is, it's not just that kid. It's all of them. Yeah. Right. You know, because um, and I think it's I think what the film does well also is um, make me at least understand. Right. So, you know, the whole thing about oppression of the Jews in Europe is that there were cycles of it. Right. So you can also understand how a Jewish family in Italy in 1938 could say, OK, you know, this is just another bad cycle. You know, there will be like uh, mm. a pogrom or something somewhere and then kind of it'll all go away. And yeah, mm. I mean, because also, you know, these extermination camps, that was completely unprecedented and, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, so, so I think that kind of so you can imagine all of these students, yeah, kind of in Grenoble thinking this is terrible, you know, but it's just another bad patch that we're going through, right? Kind of things will change. Actually, you know, not that different than a lot of this, these discussions around Trump. Yeah. Right? Everything, everything will get back to normal, right? Mm. You know. Do you think the film would have been better for? Um, making that more explicit, you know, because it sounds like a reading that you're really putting onto the film from, from your own experience or own ideas. It's, I, I'm not sure that's hugely supported by what the film really shows. Well, I, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure, right? But the thing is, you know, we were discussing this earlier. The film is just made like 25 years after the end of the war. Mm -hmm. All of these things would have been fresh in people's minds, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, I was thinking, for example, of, you know, Pauline Kael, who reviewed the film, and I read her review, you know. I mean, she was 20 in 1933. Mm. Yeah, she would have been familiar both with everything that led up to it, you know, and everything that happened in the war. And she was probably still only in her early 50s at the time that she wrote this review, mm. right? Well, not even, in her late 40s. Yeah, so I that the context that we maybe feel is missing today is implicit at the time. Yes, that's what, that would be my argument. Yeah, yeah, the kind of people would have known this stuff, you know, yeah. that it would have been fresh in people's minds. In fact, you know, like, you know, somebody Pauline Kell's age would have had a boyfriend who'd fought in Italy or whatever. Yeah, like, I yeah. mean, this is all fresh. Yeah. yeah. So, so I... I mean, I suppose I am reading into it in the sense that, you you know, with movies, you always bring all you know to your understanding of it. But I think there are things, you know, the film, I mean, you know, my feeling also is that films are like poetry or something. Yes. You know, you don't tell everything. Mm -hmm. You're not writing a thesis. Yeah. But kind of you connote, you suggest, you kind of make a metaphor of something. And I think all of those things are do lend support to my interpretation. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and the film begins with that, actually, you know, the first discussion when the boy comes, uh, from his first tennis match at the Finzi Contini's is the father saying, oh, you know, kind of these people, they, you know, kind of now that they're changing the laws, you know, they just want to protect us and lord it over us, right? That they think mm. that that's what's going to happen. Yeah. That like, you know, they'll be restricted for a while and then kind of, you know, that, that will just give one more opportunity for the Finzi Consinis to yeah, make themselves higher than they are. Mm. And the son tells him, you know, no, kind of, uh, you know, you're always making excuses. You keep quiet. You, you adjust, you know, you collaborate, right? Until it happens to us. I, so it is kind of really telling you this thing, you know, what is that 
poem about that. I kept quiet about this. I kept quiet about that. And then they came for me. Right? <laughs> I think that's how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> but that whole dialogue between the father and the son is evoking what's expressed in that poem, right? Yeah. You know, so, and that's at the very beginning of the film. You know, they've kept quiet. They've adjusted. They've collaborated, you know, and now they're coming after them. But even they don't know the extent to which they will be coming after them, yeah, to the point yeah. of killing them, right? You know, so it's not just restrictions on business or on education, right? Um, so it's that progression that the film comes. And of course, at the end of it, the father, who thinks that the Finzi Contini's are just want, want to lord it over them, kind of, you know, they're brought to the same level, basically. You know, they're just kind of Jews going to a concentration camp, hoping to be able to stay together. Yeah, which like uh, yeah, actually that struck me that bit where hopefully they won't separate. Yeah, you know because I mean that again is a has been a very active um, sort of um, bit of well disgusting activity that the Trump administration has been doing in separating families that come mm. across the border and this thing about hundreds of kids that they cannot find the families for. Yeah. Uh, disgusting. Um, but it did also make me think of like what you say about them all coming down being reduced to that same kind of thing. Um, when I was sort of, you know, I don't know, six or seven years ago, feeling less Jewish in a sense than I do now, like, I, I was, I'm, I'm, I suppose the kind of context around, well, the world now has made me more um, vocal mm. about how Jewish I am. Mm. You know what I mean? Or, or just being a Jew. Yes. You know, which is not to say that I ever like wanted to hide it, but I was just like, eh, it's not really relevant. The whole, re- all the religious stuff never interested me, and that's what I really associated it with. It wasn't about being like afraid of being called a Jew by people or anything like that. Um, it was just about, you know, I don't really feel part of that community. But increasingly, I feel like I have to, mm. you know. Um, and a, a family friend guy I know would always say, you know, you go up the same chimneys as everyone else. And increasingly, I kind of get what he means. Yes. You know, and that's kind of true here. It doesn't matter what your social standing is as a Jew in this part, in this time, you'll get sent up the same chimneys. Well, um, yeah, and, uh, you know, anti-Semitism is on the rise and um, in kind of really shocking and unbelievable ways. So I think this is what makes the film kind of all the more um, touching But I also want to say that the film is not only about that, right? It is also about a young couple falling in love, but with other people instead of with each other. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Or, you know. A love triangle. A love triangle, yeah. Yeah, so an impossible kind of love. And it's it's also about the pain of all of that. I mean, I really feel for the young boy. What what is it? Uh, uh, Giorgio. Yes. Yeah. And actually, I love the bit of dialogue with the father, you know, where he says something like, in order to understand the world, you first have to die. Yeah. And it's better to die young so that you can recover from it. Mm. And I thought that was a beautiful speech because, of course, there's this metaphoric death. There's this being crushed by life. And then there's there's a difference between being crushed by life and having your life extinguished. Yeah. Mm. Of being killed by other forces, yeah, having your life taken away, so so there's the metaphoric extinction, and there's the literal one, and the film kind of deals with both, yeah. Mm. That one scene in the cinema that you mentioned, I did want more out of that scene. I thought maybe this is just a 
very personal taste, but I felt like it ended too quickly. I wanted, you know, so it, so the um, Giorgio and I forget the character's name, but the um, <clears throat> Fabio Testi is the actor who plays him. Yeah, the gentile yeah. friend who is ends up in the relationship with the girl he loves. Um, they go to the cinema together and they see this uh, footage of uh, Nazi goose stepping and Hitler. Well, Giorgio appears to be the only Jew in the cinema. Malnate. Malnate is a character, yeah. yeah. So Giorgio appears to be the only Jew in the cinema and he speaks up and he says these clowns and he you know, basically shouts at Hitler on the screen and a couple of guys in front turn around and say, oh, fuck off, you dirty Jew, and they kind of start the fight. And then it cuts to outside, they're walking away and Malnate says, you're lucky they didn't know you're actually Jewish. Yes. You know? um, but like, I felt like I wanted more... I, I don't know. Maybe I've just. Maybe that's just a very personal thing. I wanted more of the fight in that scene. It felt like it well, ended too quickly. I wanted the the conflict. Well, let me tell you what I understood by that, right? Because what I understood by that is that Malnate, who is a communist and who is of a working class background, or yeah, certainly uh, uh, not of Giorgio's own background. Yeah, he's of a lower class. Um, is aware of all of the dangers in speaking in public. And actually, uh, what you get a sense is how, of how innocent Giorgio is. Yes, yeah. you do. So, um, you know, because one of the things that the film does, which I think is very, very clever, is he makes, the seeker makes all the Jews blonde and blue-eyed and beautiful and Aryan-looking and upper-class-looking and, yeah. Mm. So, you know, so, so that is its own shield yeah, and it's part of the same shield. It's what's been protecting all these people, yeah? They've been protected because they're wealthy. Yeah, they have the right connections. They're friends with all the establishment. They're part of the tennis club and the chamber of commerce. And, yeah, and actually their looks, yeah, kind of, you know, they, yeah, there is a hierarchy, <laughs> right? You know, uh, so kind of, you know, they're not dark and swarthy, yeah, they're kind of uh, blonde and, yeah, northern and all of that, you know, so that has been its own shield, and that this is like an awakening, he doesn't even know in what kind of danger he's in, and then the guy says, you're lucky that they don't know that you really are a Jew, right, yeah. or else you wouldn't have gotten out, yeah, so I think that lack of awareness, yeah, that, that sense of having been protected by kind of class and looks and culture. Yeah. Although I felt kind of like, um, I, I felt, I think the way um, that, you know, Asian people feel when Scarlett Johansson plays one of them. Uh, <laughs> well, like these Aryans, how dare you play Jews? <laughs> well, but you, yeah, we don't know that. And actually, you know. No, I know. Kind of, just, but, um, but I thought, but when you pointed out, actually, it wasn't that you pointed out, it's just that when the film began and these guys have blonde hair and blue eyes, I thought, Jose will be noticing this because you always well. do. And then I thought, yeah, it's interesting that these that these Jewish characters have this very Aryan well, look to them. It's one of the things that's always oppressed me. I mean, you know, you grew up in North America, and actually, it's it's really uncanny, right? Like, a kind of, you know, everyone who's meant to be beautiful is always like blonde and blue eyed, and like looks like, but you know, Barbie and Ken or whatever, right? Like, mm. you know, so you know, if you're short and Hispanic and whatever, it's it's almost like, or or people have written tons about this. If you're black, right? Like, kind of. You know, it's almost like you're not beautiful. You can't be attractive, or yeah, like all the norms. So you know, these things affect you. So of course you notice, uh, and of course in this film it becomes 
a deliberate kind of uh, aesthetic strategy. It's something that has obviously been designed, yeah, to mm. have kind of, you know, all these young Jews, yeah, be so blonde and blue-eyed and all beautiful and so on, right? Like, you know. Yeah. I mean, beautiful is the wrong word because, of course, there's <clears throat> many kinds of beauty and, you know, kind of John Garfield is beautiful, you know, but John Garfield looks Jewish, right? I mean, he's... He's short and swarthy, and he's often, he often played them in the movies, right? Like Body and Soul, right? I mean, so, so this is a deliberate strategy to kind of play with, you know, social expectations of representation, and not just in terms of the protagonist, but in terms of everybody, right? Like, mm. you know, so it's everybody playing tennis in, yeah? Yeah. Kind of... Uh, 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 in that garden looks a particular way. Um, yeah. So anyway, I thought it was beautiful. And then the thing is, you know, the film kind of creeps up on you, right? It has, you know, so Nicole's brother, who was played by Helmut Berger, right? And who's clearly gay in the film. Yeah, and it's it's not yeah. sad. Well, it is dramatized, isn't it? His... Uh, well, I, I noticed the kind of hands and close-ups between him and... Malnati, uh, Malnati, yeah. Um, early on, when they're chatting at the tennis club, and first, basically the first scene. Yes. I think you notice it there, and then you're just kind of queued in to keep looking at yeah. that afterwards. And, yeah. uh, but he dies of consumption, doesn't he? So, mm. um, so you know, all these people are doomed in different ways, and kind of life laughs at them because you know the virile communist <laughs> who's played by Fabio Testi. You know, the only thing that he hopes for. Yeah, is that he's not sent to fight in Russia. Of course, where does he die? In Russia. Yeah, <laughs> at the front. <clears throat> so um, the film has this beautiful, gentle, elegiac tone, which kind of brings out the value of civility and culture and gentleness and all of those things that the Nazis will destroy. Yeah, and it ends with the this footage of the kind of kind of destroyed an empty city and garden yes. with the final image of the the empty tennis court now and over it is this Jewish um, kind of poem it's a poem that's sung or poem slash song that's recited um, for the dead um, called um, El Malay Rakamim very more I mean I don't know the words I don't know that, but it, you, know, you, you feel you feel it in the tone in the quality of the voice that's singing it you know, the kind of mournful sense over the ending of the film. Yeah, it was so beautiful. I mean, it almost made me cry, but for me it started before that. It's when when the grandmother, yeah, almost like her face crumples up and she she begins to cry and puts her head on her granddaughter's shoulder. I thought, oh, my God, you know. <laughs> it's like, because, of course, so much is expressed in that image, right? She's looking for help and succor and... You know, and the granddaughter is like embraces her, you know, and embraces her with this magnificent diamond ring that she's wearing and so on. And you think, well, you know, you won't be able to protect yourself, much less your grandmother. Your ring will not be able to protect you like you know what's coming. Right. Mm. You know, so all of these really human kind of relationships of this this old frail woman wanting to find comfort and the granddaughter who's tall and strong wanting to comfort her and you just know that it'll all be for naught you know that there will be no comfort yeah mm. but you know this kind of beautiful image of like this yeah this emotion 
you know, in the face of what will come. And I thought it was like, ah. And it makes me think that, you know, you couldn't imagine this of an American film at all. American film would have to end with, with uh, a solution or hope or something like that, you know. This. Well, actually, there's that wonderful video essay called What is Neorealism by Kogonada, okay. you know, which takes up the Sika film. It's called Indiscretions of an American Wife. Yeah? It's um, with Montgomery Clift and Jennifer Jones, uh, produced by David Selznick. But there was an Italian version called Stazione Termini and the American version, yeah, Indiscretions of an American Wife. And what he does is to show you the difference between the Italian version and the American version to explain mm -hmm. neorealism. And that was exactly the difference. That in an American film, everything that isn't action, that doesn't advance the plot, gets cut. Mm. Right? I remember this. I saw this with you. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, you know... So, so I thought that film explained it very well, and that's what you see here, right? Because the power in uh, the Seekers films comes from incident, yeah, from things that seem to trail in, you know, yeah, that are seemingly insignificant. So in that film, you know, all the peasants waiting for the train and having conversations, and yeah, you get you get the sense of a whole way of life through those incidents, and it's not just yeah, moving to the next plot point, right? Mm. You know, because as soon as the police come to the house, you know what the story is going to be. You know, mm. like, so there are a couple of things that are added. Seeing the father mm -hmm. yeah, and being told about, you know, Giorgio. Um, but you could argue that that whole last scene is completely extraneous. Yet, you know, so much is said. Yeah. The way the servants look at their masters being rounded up by the police. You know, the way that uh, the authorities make them wait and then line them up like school children. Yeah, the way the family separated. Yeah, this, this kind of embrace. Yeah. yeah, so much is being said that mm -hmm. isn't actually action. Yeah. yeah. So, so, anyway, I thought it was very, very beautiful. Mm. Very sensitively kind of put together and yeah. dramatized. Uh, and you pointed out that this is the third Academy Award winner, winner for Best Foreign Film in a row that we've seen and have now covered for eavesdropping. Yeah, so we saw that, and the others are a while ago, so we saw um, Z, yes. or Z, Costa Gavras, that one in 1969, and then in 1970, Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion, Elio Petri, yes. or Elio Petri, and then 71, this one. The Garden of the Finns, and, they, and they're all films that, that are about totalitarianism, fascism, yes. state control, the, the kind of... Uh, Kafkaesque sort of situations that, that humans are put in. So there were discussions that cinema was having with its various audiences in the late 60s and early 70s that we should be having now. Yeah, 50 years on. Yes. 50 years ago. I mean, pointed out, like I say, this is 25 years after the end of the war, but 50 years away from us. Yes. Now. Like, it's kind of the history is getting further away. Yeah, so the film us. was made 25 years after the events depicted, but we are seeing the film 50 years after the film was first released. Yeah. So, like, it's... it's even So it's a film that has this historical perspective on what it's showing, yes. but actually our historical perspective on the film is even further from it. It's twice as yeah. far, yeah. I so. don't know. It's a funny thing to think about. 
Yes. Anyway, we are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Uh, on social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Yes, and we highly recommend that you see it. Mm. And we should say that we covered this because it's being shown, uh, it's being streamed online for the UK Jewish Film Festival yes. uh, on Sunday. So if you listen to this after Sunday the 8th of November 2020, you'll have missed that, but it's still available. Yes. You should see it. And the, um, the UK Jewish Film Festival is going on until the 19th of November. Fantastic. Thank you. That was the reason for doing it, and I'd forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Bye-bye. And in the background of everything, fascism... Hold on, because I know how much this is bothering No, no, that's okay. I don't mind it. It's yeah, I'll just close the window anyway. If you want to. It will make a difference. Okay. Jose's right. sick and tired of... Uh... <laughs> I love fireworks. <laughs> I, was just, I was just looking at your gritted teeth. No, no, I was, I was fine with it. I, I really was this time because we, because we gave it context. Okay. Um, because it is the 5th of November and, you know... It's Guido Fox Day. Did you know that his real name was Guido? It wasn't Guy. Yeah, I know. I didn't know that. I don't think it was Guido. Though. Didn't that, isn't that name he took when he went to Spain? Well... Okay, I'm going to look that up. <laughs> yeah, known as Guido Fawkes while fighting for the Spanish. Um, but his, his, given, his name given here is Guy Fawkes. Right, so. well. But you know the name that he gave, this is a side thing, you know the name that he gave when um, they caught him? At the gun, he said his name was John Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> as, if they, as if they were going to go, oh, well, we're looking for Guy Fawkes. <laughs> uh.